In most Western nations, Easter is a hangover from more religious times and simply gives people an opportunity to have a long weekend and overindulge in chocolate. But for those of you with a curious bent and half an hour to spare, here's a quick recap of what lies behind the bunnies, eggs and public holidays. Quick note, though the Holy Bible podcasts are normally quite jaunty, this episode does involve the brutal execution of a man who those inside and outside of the church agree really did live and really was killed. Those of you who aren't good with gore, or if you're listening with children, you may want to look around for a more sanitised version of events. Now for a recap. Jesus is a Jewish man living in first century Palestine and his claims that he is actually the son of God have ruffled feathers among the Jewish leadership. These men want to shut Jesus down and frame him on a charge of blasphemy. Conveniently, blasphemy is the only crime that carries the death sentence in the Jewish world and Rome's local governor-in-chief Pontius Pilate has been coerced into signing Jesus' death warrant, more to keep the peace and make the problem go away than through any personal animosity towards Jesus. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, the trial of Jesus is just another item on Pilate's to-do list, a list that includes ordering flags for an official visit and sorting out a problem with drainage. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Easter Special, Part 1, Bad Friday. unfamiliar with this podcast, think of it as a slow drive through the Bible's 66 books. It's a road trip that leaves one important item of baggage behind, religion. So if you're keen to know more about a book that has impacted Western culture more than any other, but flinch at the thought of actually picking up a Bible, this is for you. You won't be preached at or told what to do. There are plenty of podcasts that can do that for you. Okay, seatbelts on. We're going in. Having been formally condemned to death by Judea's Roman commander-in-chief, Jesus begins the first stage of his brutal execution, flogging. The flogging which criminals condemned to crucifixion must endure is closer to flaying alive. Rather than a rope whip, the tool used on Jesus to prepare him for his execution is a Roman scourge a wooden handle with several braided leather thongs into which are embedded sharp pieces of metal, sheep's bones and glass. The scourge rips the skin from the victim's torso, attacking the skeletal muscle of the back and legs, and is intended to bring the victim close to collapse and death. After his flaying by Roman soldiers, Jesus is fair game for mockers, and it soon becomes open season for anyone who wants to stick the boot in. First, he is subject to a mock coronation by Roman soldiers in Pilate's palace, the Praetorium. Adding psychological torture to the physical ordeal that Jesus is already forced to endure, a purple robe is placed around his shoulders and some thorns are twisted into a crown and pushed onto his head. A wooden staff is handed to him to suggest a scepter and the men are clearly pleased that they have dressed him up as King of the Jews before beating him and hitting him repeatedly on the head with the staff. Finally, they dress him back in his own clothes and lead him away to be executed. 
Forced to carry the heavy wooden crossbeam on his flayed shoulders, Jesus proves that he is physically as human as the next man and collapses en route to his execution site. Like the hapless member of the audience who gets dragged on stage during a show, a man named Simon, who is possibly visiting Jerusalem from the North African seaport of Cyrene, is jumped on by opportunist Roman soldiers needing to keep the show on the road. They order Simon to carry the beam for Jesus, and as he labours under its weight, mourners in the crowd among the many women wail for Jesus. He tells them not to mourn him, but to weep for their own fate. A time is coming, he says, when it will be better to be childless. A time when people will cry out to the hills and mountains to fall on them and end their suffering. If people do this when the tree is green, he says, what will they do when it is dry? In other words, if they reject God's son while he is alive, how will they square this with God on Judgment Day? Once Jesus has arrived at the kill zone, he is offered wine mixed either with myrrh or a substance called gall, a primitive anaesthetic. After tasting it, Jesus declines the offer and goes into his crucifixion without any sedative. As nails are smashed through his wrists and ankles attaching him physically to his cross, Roman soldiers draw lots to see who walks away with his clothes. Meanwhile, Pilate has a sign placed above Jesus' head, indicating that he is King of the Jews. Whether this is an act of defiance against the troublemakers who want Jesus dead, or a moment of realisation, Pilate refuses to give in to pressure from furious Jewish leaders who want the sign removed. By now, most of the disciples have fled in disarray, but the women and others who have stayed loyal to Jesus remain watching at a distance as the cross is raised into position in front of a mainly hostile crowd. Either side of Jesus are two other condemned men who the Bible describes as rebels or thieves. Some passers-by hurl insults at Jesus. If this is the man who said he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, the least he can do is save himself. The chief priests and other Jewish leaders pick up on the mood of the crowd and join in. He saved others but can't save himself, they shout. If he really is Israel's king, he should hop down from his cross and they will all believe in him. If he is God's son, they ask, God can rescue him. If he wants him, that is. The irony is that it is precisely by not saving himself that Christians believe Jesus is able to rescue others. His sacrificial death cancels out all sin and allows believers to face God with a clean slate. Among Jesus' handful of supporters are his mother Mary and her sister, another Mary who is described as the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The disciple and gospel writer John is also there. Fear and disappointment are possible factors that keep other supporters either absent or less visible, and there really seems to be nothing good about this Friday. Much speculation remains about the exact nature of crucifixion, or even what the cross might have looked like, but what is certain is that it is a public affair that is designed to be deliberately degrading. Orchestrated to not only torture and kill, but to add shame and humiliation to an execution, the cross, also known as the tree, is the instrument of death which the Roman authorities used to kill Jesus. No one today is 100% sure what this cross looks like, or whether it is even shaped like a cross. 
Some believe that it will have been a single upright post, as wood is scarce in first century Judea. Some believe this upright post has a T-bar across it. Others believe the cross is Y-shaped, or shaped like an X. Historians can't agree on whether criminals are nailed or roped to their crosses, or whether they have a small ledge on which to rest their feet. No one is entirely sure if the victim is attached first to a crossbar, which is then hung on an upright beam, or whether the whole structure is in place before the crucifixion begins. What we do know is that the cross is a brutal instrument of torture, and the last place anyone would want to take their final breaths. The victim ultimately dies from suffocation, blood loss and heart failure. Sometimes they're just too fatigued to lift their head off their chest to breathe. Death can take up to three days, and if it is too long in coming, it is sped up by smashing the victim's legs with large hammers so that the lower body can no longer support the upper body, making breathing impossible. After death, the body is usually left on the cross for birds to eat, if they haven't already begun feeding while they are still alive. Forever immortalised as pickpockets or housebreakers, there is more to the two men hanging on crosses either side of Jesus than a life of crime. Back in ancient Rome, there are many ways of dispatching with society's outcasts. Stoning, beheading and throwing off cliffs are all on the menu. The cherry on the cake is crucifixion, a punishment reserved only for slaves or those who are an actual danger to national security. Reluctantly persuaded that Jesus and his followers might eventually overthrow the Roman government in Judea, it makes sense that Rome's officials should make an example of him, killing him in this most brutal and public fashion. The two men who die alongside Jesus might have led a revolt or rebellion against the unwelcome presence of Roman soldiers in their own backyard. Whatever reason they are here, once they are nailed to their crosses, the thieves have time to reflect on their own lives. One joins in with the hecklers in the crowd, cursing Jesus and telling him that he should save the three of them if he really is the Son of God. The other thief is less cynical and sees something that many in the crowd can't, that Jesus is not only an innocent man, but that he might actually be who he and the sign hanging above his head say he is, the King of the Jews. He asks Jesus to put in a good word for him to God. And Jesus reassures him that despite the horror they may be going through right now, they will both end the day in paradise. Christians see the interaction between Jesus and the repentant thief as hugely encouraging. Many people lead lives that are far from the Christian ideal, perhaps having no faith at all, and the belief that a last-minute reprieve is possible, regardless of how bad the rest of a person's life has been, is often used as an example of the kind of forgiveness on offer from God to those who put their faith in him. Jesus may be fatigued and in immense pain, but he still has breath to speak before he dies. A number of these statements have been recorded for posterity. While he slowly suffocates, Jesus speaks seven times. His words have been given huge significance, if only because of the superhuman effort needed to speak them. Firstly, he asks God to forgive the Jews and Romans who have conspired to kill him. It is an astonishing act of forgiveness, as he tells God that these people simply haven't grasped the gravity of what they are doing. Second is his assurance to the man being crucified alongside him that they will be together with God later that same day. 
Jesus then asks his friend John to look after his mother, Mary. He may be the son of God, but he's also the son of a woman who will miss him terribly. Perhaps he sees John as the nearest and most Christ-like person left on earth, and so Mary might see something of her son in his friend. Next, Jesus is at his most human and cries out to God, wanting to know why he has abandoned him. He has taken the sin of the entire world on his shoulders and has been brutalised and broken because he is now detestable to a God who hates sin. By referring to God as my God and not simply Father, Jesus is further demonstrating that the sin which he now represents has cut him off from God. Some in the crowd who don't speak Aramaic hear Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani and assume that Jesus is calling to Elijah. The separation from God that taking on the entire sin of the world has caused him appears to be worse than any physical pain and Jesus is so distressed that he reverts to his own language. As the daylight disappears suddenly, Jesus tells his guards that he is thirsty. The long walk to the execution site, the flogging and the blood loss have taken their toll. It is at this point that guards place a sponge soaked in wine vinegar on the end of a long pole and offer it to him before retreating to see if Elijah comes to the rescue. Lastly, at around three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out, It is finished! and quotes from Psalm 31, announcing that he is putting his spirit into God's hands. He trusts that God will protect him, and these are his final words before he dies. The time is symbolic, as three is the hour when the afternoon sacrifice takes place at the temple. Christians believe that Jesus is the final sacrifice any Jew ever needs. All debts have been cancelled, as God's people prepare for a new dawn, where all they have to do is believe that Jesus is divine, not just a nuisance with ideas above his station. Jesus' mission on earth as a human has been completed. He has gathered a significant following, and now he is on the radar of the Romans, commanders of an empire that spans the known world. His message is primed to reach every corner of that empire and beyond, and will one day not only dominate the Roman world, but outlast it. Jesus dies relatively quickly, possibly from the trauma and blood loss brought on by his flogging. As soon as he dies, there are reports of atmospheric, geological and supernatural phenomena. The sky remains dark, even though it is the middle of the day. The curtain in the Jerusalem temple that separates the Holy of Holies from the other rooms is ripped from top to bottom. There is an earthquake. The dead believers rise from their tombs, walk into Jerusalem and appear to many people. To modern eyes, it reads like a zombie apocalypse, but the Gospel writer Matthew includes these details in his account of the crucifixion in an attempt to persuade his predominantly Jewish audience that Jesus is God, and that these dramatic natural and supernatural events point to something truly momentous having just taken place. The rip in the curtain of the Holy of Holies is hugely symbolic to Christians. It suggests that this most sacred of rooms is no longer the centre of God's presence and that people now have direct access to him through Jesus. But who are the dead who get up from the tombs near the crucifixion site and walk into the city? The Bible has no answers to this one and why God raised certain people, why they went into the city, how long they remained there and what they did remains a mystery. 
Death from crucifixion can take a number of days, but according to Jewish law, leaving the condemned man hanging overnight will desecrate the land. Also, Sabbath is about to kick in, which means that no work of any kind, especially removing corpses from crosses, can be done. The best possible endgame is for the men to die while it is still daylight on Friday. Roman soldiers smash the legs of the two rebels, a humane gesture that means that they will suffocate more quickly. But when they come to Jesus, they are surprised to see that he is already dead. To double-check, a centurion jabs a spear into his side, and when both blood and water come out, they know that Jesus has died. Whether the centurion is a Roman soldier or just a low-ranking local guard, he is overcome by the drama of the scene, commenting in amazement that the man they have killed must surely be the Son of God, making him the first pagan after the crucifixion to acknowledge Jesus' divinity. Hundreds of years earlier, a psalmist writes about a man whose bones they will not break, while the prophet Zechariah speaks about a man who will be pierced. The piercing could refer to the nails in Jesus' hands or feet, or to the stabbing of the spear. The spear that is used to stab Jesus is now known as the Spear of Destiny, and several spears still in existence lay claim to being the weapon used on Jesus, one of which might be in St Peter's in Rome, and another in the Hofburg Palace in Vienna. Once the spectacle is over, the crowds disperse, with many beating their breasts, a first-century Near Eastern response to grief or guilt. This has not been a typical crucifixion by any means. The brutality of it has been made more awful because Jesus is innocent of the charges which have been levelled at him. This is nothing short of a state-sanctioned lynching. However, the way Jesus dies and the reason he dies have had a profound effect on his followers, particularly with the benefit of big-picture hindsight. Why would God send his son to be tortured to death in one of the most painful and drawn-out executions devised by one of the most brutal regimes ever to rule? The answer Christians come up with has much to do with events that take place a couple of days later. Unexpectedly, given that Jesus has been accused of blasphemy, his burial is overseen by a prominent Jewish leader. Joseph of Arimathea is one of the Bible's good guys. Despite being wealthy, an attribute that sits uncomfortably with Jesus' teaching, and part of the corrupt cartel in charge of Jerusalem, he remains open-minded. He knows that the Jewish people are waiting for the Messiah, a descendant of King David who will throw off Israel's enemies and reunite the twelve tribes. And for him, there is a chance that Jesus might actually be the chosen one. The few followers who remain at the cross until Jesus has died now need to remove the body before the birds begin to peck at it, and they need to finish their work before the Sabbath begins. But how? Joseph clearly feels a connection to Jesus, and is no doubt influenced by a fellow member of the Jewish council, Nicodemus, who also has sympathies for the dead man. The Jews' ruling council is called the Sanhedrin, and, as a prominent member, Joseph is able to approach Pilate confidently and ask for the body. Once permission is granted, he and Nicodemus bring myrrh and aloes to disguise the smell. They wrap these along with some fresh linen around Jesus' body and place him in a brand new tomb carved into the rock in a nearby garden. 
With the twelve disciples long gone, the two Pharisees lay Jesus in the tomb and roll a stone across the entrance, while Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus' disciple James the Less look on. Predictions about Jesus' resurrection are no secret to Jerusalem's rulers, who are determined that this will not happen on their watch. Their influence with Judea's Roman leadership allows them access to a cohort of imperial guards who seal the tomb to make it escape-proof. Wary that Jesus' followers might come in the night, steal the body and hide it in an attempt to prove that he has come back to life, the rabbis arrange for the guards to keep watch over the tomb day and night. If he is an ordinary human, Jesus' story should end here. What happens next, according to Jesus' biographers, is something so far-fetched and hard to grasp that people today are still talking about it. There are huge question marks over what exactly happened, and the four accounts all differ. Could something incredible have taken place in the burial ground near Golgotha on the Sunday after Jesus' corpse was laid to rest there? Some two billion people alive today believe it did. All that is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Feel free to follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Just search Holy Bible. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y-B-U-Y-A-B-L-E. And if you like what you're hearing, feel free to give us a five-star review wherever you're listening. Thank you.